Hello, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 9 of Bad Gaze, a podcast about evil and complicated gay men in history. I'm Ben Miller, a writer, researcher, and member of the board of the Gay Museum in Berlin. And I'm Hugh Lemmy, an author and writer. Last week, we talked about Stonewall Nation, a plan to build a gay colony in Alpine County, California, that ran into a buzzsaw of its own race blindness and insensitivity to the indigenous people of the area. Who are we talking about this week, Hugh? Ben, do you remember back in 2015, there was a scandal in the British press regarding the university exploits of the then Prime Minister, David Cameron? Are you talking about the events memorably written up in your book of poetry, Confirmed Pigfucker? Well, quite, yeah. What happened was a biography of the Prime Minister was written by the Tory party donor Lord Ashcroft as a sort of revenge for Cameron refusing to give the peer a seat on the cabinet uh, in return for all the donations that he'd been making. And in it, he alleged that there was a photo that was said to exist of Cameron while he was a student at Oxford University that showed him taking part in an initiation ritual for a secret dining society at Oxford. And it was alleged that in the photo, um, the Prime Minister was had his genitals inside the mouth of a decapitated pig. This led many in Britain, including myself, to start to refer to the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom as, quote, unquote, a pig fucker. Well, that he certainly was. I mean, whether or not that is literally true is almost an irrelevance, because for a country that's still ruled by these old institutions of power, such as Eton College and Oxbridge, the allegation that decisions of state are made within these shadowy, secretive institutions by lifelong friends born into privilege and entitlement has a very strong element of truthiness about it. Once again, we come back to the general psychosexual health of the British <laughs> ruling classes. It seems to be an obsession for me this season. I think it's just, it's one of these themes that just keeps on getting. Yeah. So the idea that these secret societies are also based around these perverse initiation rituals and also sort of sexual libertinism, while um, the same political party has this long history of persecuting non-Oxbridge sexual deviancy. <laughs> Jeffrey Epstein. <clears throat> also rings true. Um, but why, in this episode of Bad Gaze, I hear you ask, am I talking about the very heterosexual David Cameron? Oh God, no, please don't tell me. <laughs> no, no, not that. Not anything other than that. Please, please. Because the name of the dining club at which the pig fucking definitely happened was the Piers Gaveston Society. And the subject of today's podcast is the self-same Piers Gaveston. So we're not talking about David Cameron? No, David Cameron. Oh, thank God. I won't mention him again. Thank God. Um... And perhaps you'll have a clue to the themes of today's episode when I tell you that the motto of the Piers Gaveston Society is, <clears throat> I'm going to try this, Sane non memini ne ordice unum alterum ita delixice. Or, for those of us who are out of private school Latin education, truly non-remember hearing of a man enjoying another so much. So much as David Cameron enjoyed that too. So much as Pierce Gaveston. Ah, so. So, Pierce Gaveston was probably born around 1284 in Gascony in the south of France, which was at the time part of the uh, Duchy of Aquitaine. Hugh, you keep picking these people and forcing me to do this same disclaimer over and over again, which I'll do again here, but... For the historians who are listening, nobody who was born in 1284 can be considered gay according to modern standards, but it is sometimes interesting to use a contemporary analytic lens to look at people in the past, even if they didn't necessarily think of themselves that way. Now I can stop. 
And I'll give you the same response I always give, which is, wait till you hear what he did. (laughs) Um, So the Duchy of Aquitaine was in the hands of the Plantagenet dynasty, who were the kings of England at the time. Unlike most of Western Europe, inheritance in Aquitaine could pass down through the female line of the family, which was just a hangover from the sort of Visigoth and um, Carolingian eras. Um, and indeed, the reason the Duchy, of, uh, the Duchy of Aquitaine was controlled by an English monarch in an act of personal union was because in 1152, the famous Eleanor of Aquitaine, who was the Duchess of the Duchy, married Henry II of England and the Duchy passed into English hands. In fact, Piers's father, Arno de Gabaston, had originally been a knight in the service to Viscount Gaston VII of Moncada, who was a sworn en- enemy of the English and had fought Henry III in an invasion of Gascony um, by Alfonso X of Castile. Henry III ended the invasion through an act of diplomatic marriage, arranging for his son, Edward, to marry Alfonso's daughter, Eleanor of Castile. As you can probably already tell, marriage in the medieval period was about alliances and not dalliances. Amongst the aristocracy and nobility of Europe, marriage was a way to end war, forge alliances and claim territory. So Arnaud, Pierre's father, married Claramond de Marsan, who was the heir to a large amount of land in Gascony. And he became what is known as a vassal of the young Prince Edward. That is to say, he became obligated to serve him militarily. In 1274, Edward became the King of England, as well as the Duke of Aquitaine, and Arnaud spent many years in military service to him. Edward was a tough military leader. Uh, Arnaud served him in the repeated suppression of the Welsh princes, who had been fighting for independence, and Edward built a huge ring of castles around Wales, colonising the country in order to forever suppress Welsh military rebellion. And so this is uh, Edward I, the son of Henry. Uh, Arnaud then joined uh, to serve Edward in his attempts to suppress a campaign of rebellion in Scotland, referred to as the First Scottish War of Independence. And you might know this war from the 1995 Mel Gibson film Braveheart. I would rather that I didn't. Which features Edward I as a tyrannical despot. Edward, known as the Hammer of the Scots, or Edward Longshanks, because he was six foot two at a time when the average height was probably about five, six, five, seven. Oh God, I should have lived then, I'd be tall. <laughs> and his wife, Eleanor of Castile, had 16 children, but only four of them would outlive him. And only one of them was a male heir. Um, that male heir was the youngest of all their children put together, or the, all their children they had together, sorry. Um, although actually Edward Longshanks would have three more children, two boys and a girl, with his second wife, Margaret of France, who was 40 years his junior. So Edward Longshank's son was also called Edward. He was born in 1284, the same year as Piers Gaveston. He was a tall, attractive youth, but he was less interested in hunting and falconry than music. He liked physical work, though, but stuff like laying hedges and digging trenches, because he enjoyed the company of labourers. This didn't pass without comment, as it was deemed sort of inappropriate for a young prince to be hanging out with workers. And although he quarrelled with his father, Edward Longshanks, um, his father saw great things in store for the prince. And so on wrapping up his war with King Philip IV of France, the now widowed Longshanks sealed the deal by marrying Philip's sister, Margaret, Margaret of France, and so arranging a future marriage between the 14-year-old Edward and Philip's two-year-old daughter, Isabella. 
so far so medieval so i'm not sure i can even work it out but i think that would mean that edward ii would become his stepmother's father-in-law son-in-law <laughs> christ <clears throat> um Okay, it's all great. It's a circle, yeah, yeah. This is why they're such a um, good-looking, healthy bunch of people. The European royals, yeah, and made such uh, decisions rooted in such uh, long-term mental health yeah. and emotional stability. Good life choices all around. Anyway, around this time, Edward Longshanks met Arno Gabaston's um, young son, Piers Gabaston while he was on campaign in Gascony, and he was really impressed with the young man. Um, he was seen as sort of carrying both courtly manners and also betraying very impressive martial skills. What better example for his own son, who was always digging around in trenches or listening to music? So in 1300, Arno brought 16-year-old peers to the English court, where he met a young Prince Edward, who was about the same age. Can I just briefly say that... Um... A teenage boy just wanting to listen to music and hang out with sweaty workers really does feel like the representation that so many of us have been looking for. Yeah. So um, a young, strong, handsome lad bought to teach a quote-unquote musical young prince a thing or two about how to be a man. I don't think I need to explain to you any further where this is going. <laughs> that is the gayest thing I've ever heard in my life. Can you say that again, please? A strong, uh, a young, strong, handsome lad bought to teach a quote-unquote musical young prince a thing or two about how to become a man. I think I've seen that video, but I no. don't want to say where because my mother listens to the show. <laughs> And for a while, Gaveston was really praised as a good influence on the young prince, who suddenly had uh, a new interest in all things soldierly. <laughs> oh, gee. <laughs> Wonder why. Um, they, they became very firm friends. and oh, Firm friends? Firm friends, yes. yes. And uh, Great, rock-hard, throbbing friendship. And Edward Longshanks approved. Uh, and in 1304, Gaveston, who would have been uh, 18... Um, was uh, he was given the wardship of a younger nobleman who was called Roger Mortimer after Mortimer's father died. So he sort of had to look after Mortimer's interests, take care of him, which proved obviously that the king must have seen Gaveston as a sort of trustworthy and reliable guy. Um, remember that name, Roger Mortimer. It'll become important later. But it wasn't all plain sailing, of course. Uh, Gaveston got tied up in this intrigue where Prince Edward got into a dispute with the treasurer, um, the bishop, Walter Langton, about his allowance. And the king was extremely displeased by the situation and sent Edward and Gaveston away from his court. But things must have returned to normality pretty quickly uh, because in 1306, Edward and Pierce were both knighted at a lavish banquet in Westminster called the Feast of the Swans. The Feast of the Swans was a mass knighting of three, uh, 267 young men. The purpose was to swear them into allegiance, not just to the king, but also to his heir, Prince Edward, and also to de dedicate them into a form of holy war, firstly against infidels in the Holy Land in an upcoming crusade, uh, but secondly against Robert of Bruce in Scotland, and to avenge Robert of Bruce's desecration of Greyfriars Church in Dumfries. Edward Longshanks knighted Prince Edward, and Edward then knighted the 266 remaining men, including lovely Pierce. Hmm. Um, so these wars with Scotland were just a, a continuing, ongoing part of um, Longshanks' reign. 
Within a year, though, Gaveston was again persona non grata with Longshanks. Accounts amongst contemporary chroniclers uh, differ. Walter of Giesborough wrote that Prince Edward asked Longshanks to give Gaveston the county of Ponthieu, and Edward responded by ripping out the prince's hair and exiling Gaveston. Others suggest that Gaveston was exiled actually as a form of punishment for Edward for something that he'd done wrong. Um, either way, on April 30th, 1307, Gaveston was sent back to his childhood home of Gascony and ordered not to return. Edward was clearly, clearly devastated. As Gaveston was exiled, Edward gave him £260 in money in uh, that time. God knows how much that would be these days. Uh, and also a set of be- beautiful clothes and horses. But was this a sexual relationship or just another case of just good friends? In the Chronicle of His Life, Vita Eduardi Secundi, the chronicler writes, quote, Indeed, I do not remember to have heard that one man so loved another. Jonathan cherished David. Achilles loved Patroclus. But we do not read that they were immoderate. Our king, however, was incapable of moderate favour. On, and on account of Pierce was said to forget himself, and so Pierce was accounted a sorcerer, end quote. And also, you know, Achilles and Patroclus, yeah. you know. Or Jonathan and David. You know. Um, but if that's not clear enough, the Chronicle of Melser says, quote, Edward delighted excessively in the vice of sodomy. Okay, there you go. <laughs> Bitch, me too. Me too. Edward Longshanks was a temperamental and aggressive king. In Braveheart, he's described as a, quote, cruel pagan. Do not watch Braveheart for any kind of historical accuracy. For a start, um, uh, William Wallace has an affair with Isabella, who was actually nine years old when William Wallace was executed. So, Well, it's the kind of shit Mel Gibson would be into, well, allegedly. Um, but in Braveheart, he's described as a cruel, cruel pagan, which... He's cruel, definitely, but pagan, certainly not. He displayed some of the worst aspects of medieval Christian piety, uh, including fighting on the Ninth Crusade and issuing the Edict Edict of Expulsion, which expelled all the Jews from England for the next 350 years. Yay. Um, And fighting his sort of holy war in Scotland, he contracted dysentery, and he died on campaign against Robert de Bruce in 1307. He had two dying wishes. One, that his heart would be taken on further crusades into the Holy Land. And two, that his son's friend, Gaveston, would never be allowed to return to the country. Once again, bad dads. Longshanks died on the 7th of July, 1307. On the 20th of July, Prince Edward was crowned Edward II. By August 1st, Piers Gaveston was back in England and on the 6th of August, Gaveston was made the Earl of Cornwall. So they didn't really um, abide by his will. Um, and this was seen as highly inappropriate because the Earl of Cornwall, the earldom, had always been gifted within the royal family. And his stepmother, Margaret of France, who um, had expected that one of her sons, Edward's half-brothers, would be given the title and also the huge amount of land that it came with. And in fact, under the reign of his uh, successor, the earldom itself actually became a duchy, which is traditionally still given to the heir of the throne. Today, it's held by Prince Charles. And as part of the crown, it's not liable to pay any corporation tax, despite the fact it's worth over £1 billion and brings in more than £20 million a year, which he does actually pay voluntarily income tax on, but still. 
They do, however, make lovely biscuits, which you can buy in Waitrose. Anyway, um, in the 16th century, the virtuoso Elizabethan playwright Christopher Marlowe wrote a play entitled Edward II, and it's clear that then, um, by then in the popular imagination, Piers and Edward were definitely known to be lovers. In the play, the uh, Piers, the character of Piers, says... <clears throat> My father is deceased, come, Gaveston, and share the kingdom with thy dearest friend. Ah, words that make me surfeit with delight. What greater bliss can happen to Gaveston than live and be the favourite of a king? Sweet prince, I come. These, these thy amorous lines, might have enforced me to have swum from France, and likely under gasped upon the sand, so thou would smile and take me in thy arms. The sight of London to my exiled eyes is as Elysium to a new-come soul. Not that I love the city or the men, but that it harbours him I hold so dear, the king upon whose, whose bosom I let me die, and with the world be still, still at enmity. What need the Arctic people love starlight to whom the sun shines both by day and night? Farewell, base stooping to the lordly peers, my knee shall bow to none but to the king. As for the multitude that are but sparks, raked up in embers of their poverty, Tanti I'll fawn first on the wind that glanceth at my lips and flieth away. Okay. So it's important to remember, of course, that um, how influential the 16th century playwrights are in setting our popular understanding of medieval monarchs um, and how much they themselves were pressurised by the royal politics of the day. After all, we still think of Richard III as being a sort of hunchbacked creep, thanks to Shakespeare. However, most cultural representations of Edward II since have revolved around this pernicious influence of Gaveston and the power of their sexual attraction towards each other. The life of Edward II of England was the first attempt by Brecht at uh, producing his epic theatre in the 1920s, and Derek Jarman also produced an explicitly queer version of the film in 1992, which featured um, homosexual scenes, sex scenes. But chroniclers at the time in the immediate, ap in immediate aftermath of his reign were also reasonably explicit, um, for the time at least, about his proclivities. Sir Thomas Gray wrote, quote, He was wise, charming and affable in conversation, but malevolent indeed. He was clever at whatever he fancied to turn his hand to. He was overly friendly with his intimates, reserved with strangers, and he loved too much a certain person in particular. That person was now the Earl of Cornwall, owning land from Land's End to Yorkshire with an income of £4,000 a year, and he was in need of a wife. The king arranged for him to marry his niece, the 14-year-old Margaret de Clare. Her mother was Joan of Acre, Edward's sister. So now Gaveston had it all, wealth, money, titles, and now royal relatives. But what he didn't have was any friends, and not having friends put you in a dangerous position in the medieval court. And actually, he showed no desire or even ability to make friends. What seems to mark out so many of our bad gays who rise up in relationship to other powerful men is that they put all their eggs into one basket, so to speak, which is their boyfriends. And they pay scant respect to the sort of complex ecosystem of interpersonal relationships that seem to make social scenes actually function. An example, in December 1307, Edward organised a tournament in Gaveston's honour. Gaveston and his men turned up and it seems basically cheated, bringing too many men into the field and dishing out a humiliating defeat to the earls of Warren, uh, Hereford and Arundel, 
And that is not how to go about making friends and influencing people. It is not. Rumours began to spread, not just about their sexual relationship, but also about his influence more generally. A chronicler wrote of, quote, two kings reigning in one kingdom, the one in name and the other in deed, end quote. So the two men were entering dangerous territory. A month after the tournament, Edward travelled to France to finally complete the negotiations for his marriage, which, remember, he'll have been, he'd been betrothed to the uh, daughter of the King of France, Philip. In January, he arrived in France, but he found that he didn't really get on with his pr- prospective father-in-law, but Edward needed to sign off on the marriage. It would bring him increased control of his territory in Aquitaine and also much-needed money to rebuild the treasury after his father's wars in Scot- uh, Scotland. He could have made a better decision than to leave Pierce Gaveston as the regent, of course, the caretaker king, while he was abroad negotiating. King. Yeah, that doesn't seem yeah. like such a hard decision. No. I mean, and because traditionally, of course, you'd always leave a very close member of your family, not just um, your favourite. King Philip of France, who was decisively uncharmed by Edward, um, pushed hard to lower the cost of the dowry for his daughter, and he also quibbled over the laws regarding Aquitaine. But they did seal the deal, and Edward brought home his 12-year-old bride after a ceremony in France to their coronation as king and queen in Westminster Abbey and uh, and Westminster Palace in February. Uh. Um, he laid on a good spread for the occasion, but he spent the entire dinner focusing all his attentions on his lovely peers, reunited at last. He also gave the jewellery that was intended for the young Isabella to Gaveston, and Gaveston wore those publicly. Oh boy. The King of France, who had sent his um, brothers, and also the English nobles, were not impressed by this behaviour at the wedding and coronation. So, this is, again, less than a year into his reign. Um... The English Parliament met later in the month to discuss the new king's plans. Edward wanted to push forward with sweeping reforms, but the barons had other concerns and the Parliament was locked in stalemate because they refused to discuss reform until the Gaveston issue was dealt with. A second Parliament in April hit the same issue and revolt looked lightly. This time, however, the barons had the support of Isabella, her father in France, and so Gaveston had to go. Aquitaine seemed like the most suitable place for him to be sent to, Uh, on pain of excommunication by the Archbishop of Canterbury. But Edward still wanted to preserve some dignity for the lovely peers. So at the last moment, he sent Gaveston to become the Lieutenant of Ireland. He'd also arranged for him to be given land in Gascony to make up for the fact that he'd had to forfeit the Earldom of Cornwall. Mm -hmm. In exile in Ireland, Gaveston commanded the suppression and colonisation of the Irish, and he managed to gain control of land from Dublin to Wicklow. And he was actually supposedly quite a good military commander. But back in England, Edward had only one thing on his mind, how to get Gaveston back. And through a combination of bribery and cajoling, he managed to win many of his lords back on side, but he still had to persuade the church and the king of France. So Edward offered to help both Pope Clement V and King Philip of France in their campaign to suppress the Knights Templar, or Templars. Hmm. Perhaps now's a good moment to actually go over who the Templars were, because the suppression of Templars in Europe is actually a vital part of the story of homophobia and homosexuality in the continent. Put briefly, um, the poor fellow soldiers of Christ and of the Temple of Solomon 
better known as the Knights Templar, were a Catholic military order of knights that had emerged after the First Crusades to defend pilgrims who were visiting the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem, which they believed to be the Temple of Solomon on Temple Mount. They received backing from a very influential cleric called Bernard of Clairvaux, complete arsehole. And as a result, they got papal blessing. And one part of that blessing is that they were made exempt from abiding by any local laws by the Pope, and that included taxation. So they never had to pay tax in any place they went. Oh boy. So as a result, they became incredibly wealthy, also because they were taking donations from rich lords and monarchs around London. One service they offered pilgrims was a sort of deposit scheme for their cash, whereby they could leave their money at one of their churches all around Europe, which were known as temples. For example, there is one in London, uh, Temple Church, which is where the Tube Stop Temple is now, named after it. But in exchange, they'd get a credit note, which they could then cash in, either in Jerusalem or any of the temples they visited along the way. So they became a sort of transnational banking organisation that was totally unrestricted by local taxes. And they invested that money into everything from olive groves and agriculture to manufacturing and trade. They even owned their own fleet. They built castles. They bought lands. They even owned the entire island of Cyprus at one point. So it became both a state within a state, but also an international corporation, one of the first. So by the start of the 14th century, it became uh, it become clear that they were sort of threatening aspects of the established order in Europe. And King Philip of France in particular owed a huge amount of money to them because he'd used them to bankroll his war against Edward Longshanks. And there were allegations around homosexuality and of dark satanic practices around the Templars. So he sort of took advantage of those in order to shut down the order with the help of Pope Clement. And he executed hundreds of Templars for heresy, including its leader, the Grand Master Jacques de Malay. These accusations included ritual kissing of the anus and penis. It's um, it's very hard to pull apart the idea of whether the Templars had those forms of homosexual or homosexual elements to them. And it wasn't homosexual because there was no homosexuality before the late nineteenth century. Please don't tweet us. Please don't email me. Please don't take my historian card away. We're doing this on purpose. We're being sloppy on purpose. It's interesting to look at it this way. We're trying to make a point. Continue. Um, but maybe we can sort of discuss that in a further episode because they were an interesting organization. But they were bound by codes of chastity and poverty. And there were definitely aspects of partnered male bonding between knights who were on crusade. And there is some evidence of rituals of a sort of adoptive brotherhood between two men, a sort of same-sex union that would bond men for life. In Sex and Punishment, the writer uh, Eric Barkowitz writes, quote, Such same-sex unions, sometimes called spiritual brotherhoods, forged irrevocable bonds between the men involved. Often they involved missionaries about to set off on foreign voyages, but lay male couples also entered into them. Other than the gender of the participants, it was difficult to distinguish the ceremonies from typical marriages. 12th century liturgies for same-sex unions, for example, involved a pair holding their right hands at the altar, the recital of marriage prayers, and a ceremonial kiss, end quote. Some suggest that this is a sort of bond that Piers and Edward might have shared, although it seems that as the Templar link would suggest that bond is more linked with crusading, which neither of them took part in. Um, I need to do more research to talk in a more informed manner on this subject 
so take it all with a pinch of salt, but these are definitely discussions worth considering. The other thing to note is how the suppression of homosexuality and the suppression of Christian organisations that outlived their usefulness was a constant link that was forged by kings in the medieval period. In the public imagination at the time, as now, the church was seen as a place for queers. Indeed, in England, the first state-based and not church-based prohibition on homosexuality was the 1533 Buggery Act, passed by Henry VIII, one year before the Act of Supremacy, which established the Church of England. Um, punishment included confiscation of property and executions. Uh, the same year, Thomas Cromwell was charged with a, an audit and visitation of the monasteries, and in 1536, Henry dissolved the monasteries and executed the monks and nuns, and the charge of sodomy was a key justification for that. And that's where this history gets into this kind of broader history of uh, land expropriation and the kind of story about witch hunting uh, and other forms of justification for expropriation that historians like Sylvia Federici and Chris Chitty have done a really good job of yeah. finding out. So back to Edward and Pierce. Uh, Edward took part in this persecution and suppression of the Templars that was happening in every European country at the time, except from Portugal. And having placated both the barons, the church, and the French at great cost to himself, Gaveston was uh, allowed to return to England, where he was reinstated as the Earl of Cornwall. Having lost and recovered his fortune, Pierce Gaveston was suitably chastened, restrained his behaviour and lived out a long and happy life of his wife, money and dogs, keeping his distance from the king and a low public profile. Just joking. <laughs> no. You got upon, me there, Hugh. Upon, upon returning, Gaveston immediately began to flash his royal connections and privileges even more lavishly than before. He also began taunting and mocking the very barons who'd allowed him to return devising cruel nicknames for them. This guy. The Earl of Lancaster, he called the Fiddler. The Earl of Pembroke, Joseph the Jew. Remember that Jews had been expelled from England under uh, you know, Longshanks. Mm. He called, called the Earl of Warwick, the Black Dog of Arden, and the Earl of Lincoln, Burst Belly. So you absolutely cannot blame the barons for wanting to bring him down a peg or two. And within six months, they had decided they weren't going to attend Parliament if he was there. The king was forced to act, and so he appointed under coercion a, a group of barons to reform the royal household called the Lord's Ordainers. Um, this group became a powerful lobby against Gaveston and would lay the ground for his inevitable downfall. Discontent was rife throughout the kingdom. Edward had largely abandoned the Scotch wars that had obsessed his father and had allowed Robert the Bruce time to rebuild his force and to begin pressurising the English at the border. Edward believed victories against the Scots would quell his own internal opposition, so he rode north to sort of stand in his daddy's footsteps. But the Scots wouldn't meet him in open battle, and then lacking the support of enough lords to sort of pin the Scots down, he had to return to England for another parliament. But he would need to leave a lieutenant to fight in Scotland. Who do you think he chose? Piers Gaveston. So back in London, the, uh, the ordainers were on the offensive this group of barons. One of Edward's allies, the moderate Earl of Lincoln, burst belly to me and you, uh, had died, and the Earl of Lancaster, the fiddler, was on the warpath. They were ready to present their recommendations to Parliament, and in August 1311, Parliament met. Um, front and centre of the reforms was the demand to get rid of Gaveston again, 
The king refused, but it was no use. His political position was untenable. So in November, Gaveston was exiled for the third time. Ben, guess what happened next? <sighs> I know what happened next, but tell me anyway. Um, so the king then ruled Gaveston's exile unlawful. And uh, that was within two months. He wasn't even away for two months. And so Lovely Pierce was back by his side in January 1312. So the king and the barons prepared for war. The church sided with the barons and Gaveston was excommunicated. With the king, uh, he headed north, sort of Bonnie and Clyde style, pursued by the barons. They were nearly captured together at Newcastle, but they managed to beat a retreat and Pierce went to his newly fortified castle in Scarborough while Edward went to York. But the clock was counting down. Besieged by the, York, by the Lords, Gaveston surrendered on terms where he would accompany the Lords to York to negotiate with the King in return for his safe treatment. Lord Pembroke was charged with his safekeeping and took him to Oxfordshire. However, in June, Pembroke left him there to go and see his wife. And Lord Warwick, you'll remember as the Black Dog, he saw his chance. Despite it being an attack on Pembroke's honour, he captured Piers in Oxfordshire and took him to Warwick Castle. And then before a kangaroo court of the other barons, they passed the penalty of death on Gaveston. Gaveston was taken by a small group of men onto the land of Warwick's ally Lancaster, where he was unceremonially run through with a sword and beheaded, his body left to rot where it fell. And here ends the life of Piers Gaveston. That is quite a story, uh, and you know you're reminded of the that sort of famous truism about history that the past is a foreign country and they do things different there. Um, it really is uh, here, and probably for the good that we're away from twelve year old brides, and yeah, people being their own stepmothers, uncles, college roommates, grandsons, nephews, nieces, brothers grandfathers, children, or whatever those family relationships looked like. Um, so it's interesting. I mean, I I went busting in a few times there to kind of clarify or re-clarify or state or restate this kind of, uh, by now pretty standard, at least in the academic world, social constructionist position on um, homosexual and gay identities, which is basically to say that... Um, Sexuality is not some innate quality of people, but is instead something that emerges out of different kind of regimes of production and exchange and is related to different um, global systems uh, or kind of local systems, uh, either or both, of production and control. And so under that kind of set of thinking, uh, which is pioneered by folks like Jeffrey Weeks and Michel Foucault in the 1980s, um, it's impossible to talk about people living under feudalism in 1284 as gays because the what gay means or what homosexual means um, is a particular kind of relationship uh, to 
or contains a different kind of relationship to modes of production and exchange that don't exist until the late 19th, early 20th century. And then you start reading some of these sources. And I don't know if it's, I, I don't know if it's just our eyes looking at them or what, but there is just something so gay about this stuff, for better or for worse. I mean, for lack of a better word, you know? A lot of that is us looking back on it in that way, though, because these forms of personal union, for example, between maybe two men on crusade could have like very specific connotations and come out of a very specific need for men traveling in all male groups on onto crusade. They think they'll never get back from in terms of um, not just protecting each other and that sort of form of um, soldiers relationship, but also in terms of, I don't know, like, I've not done enough reading into it, but perhaps um, telling the stories of each other's crusades or being able to carry back the information or, you know, sharing or, you know, there's all sorts of sort of bonds that exist that could exist between men, which don't, which don't, which, which we're only seeing in this light as a same sex union, quote unquote, because they also have this aspect of some sort of blessing, but also there's all sorts of forms where people are blessed before battle, et cetera, et cetera. And just, just because this is like a, a, a couple of men doesn't in any way, of course, imply anything approaching what we have today in terms of gay marriage or same-sex union. But at the same time, men could have existed in that bond, which existed for a very specific military and economic reason at the time. And also, you know, so yeah. sometimes out, out on, on crusades, you know, That's, you're cuddling uh, up, it gets cold. You need a release, whatever, you know, situational. Let's, uh, crusade, tell and chill. Yeah. Um, yeah, because the thing we want to avoid, I think, is getting into this kind of uh, old school essentialism where, which is sort of what constructionism was responding to, where um, you sort of very quickly look at a source that says something like same-sex union and then use that to make some kind of a naturalizing claim, right? Where you're like, look, same-sex unions, therefore there's always been gay marriage, therefore it's always been the same, therefore we have always been. Um, and no, we is something that gets made and that, that we have to keep defining. And also, like, just by looking at it, like the, the, the stories of the heterosexual marriages at the time, they also bore no relationship towards what we today consider heterosexual marriage they weren't based around um this idea of love in the same way some of the ideas that we currently have about love and romance were only starting to be developed within the very highest echelons of this very court um it was Eleanor of aquitaine who had this uh, what was called the court of love and at that time they were starting to write these um these stories called romances because they're from the Romance languages, which were based around um, sets of higher ethical ideas regarding um, valor and uh, struggle and desire and um, uh, what what what, uh, what would later come to be understood in sort of a 18th and 19th century context context as romantic love that today is the underpinning of heterosexual marriage but the idea then that the, the marriage was um, preceded by some form of um, desire between two two partners just didn't, didn't exist you know that or if 
if it did exist, it was it was of no consequence whatsoever. I mean, you're arranging marriages here between eight-year-old boys and two-year-old girls that are going to actually be consummate, consummated in ten or fifteen years' time. Um, this was a yeah. So so in the same way that that those heterosexual relationships don't actually bear very much relationship at all, I think, to the understanding of heterosexual marriage today. Way these same-sex unions, quote unquote, that that might have been happening at the time around um, crusading and uh, knights' relationships with each other are just incomparable in any form to the idea of same-sex marriage today, which is an extremely modern idea that's developed out of heterosexual marriage. Mm -hmm. And even heterosexuality doesn't really exist at this point. I mean, there's that fabulous Jonathan Ned Katz book, The Invention of Heterosexuality, which kind of historicizes heterosexuality isn't as an institution because that too is not natural um and it's worth also of course pointing out that both edward and Piers had plenty of kids with their wives right um changing topic dramatically from the very kind of academic and high-minded to something else do we have any record of what Piers gaverston looked like um, he was he was described at the time as very beautiful, as han as handsome. So is this... I know what you're going to say. I don't think it's relevant because I, I feel like these two were very much seem to have a, a partnership relationship. You know, Evil they, twink energy? No, I don't think so. I'm, 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 I'm working against this narrative now. I think... We're low on evil twinks this no, season. No, because I, I feel like we're demonizing... In particular, twinks. Where well, I mean, all we, gays are we awful. had we had plenty of bears, plenty of bad bears uh, as well. So yeah, um, and of course, the uh, world historical force that is evil twink energy has to do with a mood and has nothing to do with anyone's shape. And we shouldn't demonize twinks any more than we should demonize anyone else. And actually, yeah. if there's a group of gays that are definitionally the worst, it's bears. Yeah, we all know that. Yes. Um, what's quite interesting as well, though, is what happened afterwards after Pierce's death. Because Edward um, swore revenge. Um, he'd lost a lot of jewels and horses and stuff when he'd been forced out of Newcastle, but he'd managed to negotiate them back. And he actually didn't get revenge until he beat Lancaster in 1322, so 10 years later, and he had him executed. Um, but it does seem that this was, shall we say, a habit of, um, of Edward's, very much like when we did the episode on James. Um, because his next favourite was uh, Hugh Dispenser, the younger, another young man who he um, became very, very close to. And there was uh, a similar story that ended up with Isabella, his wife, um, who became known as the She-Wolf of France, refusing to return from a visit to France because of his relationship with Hugh Dispenser. Uh, he, sh she ended up um, having an affair with... Um, Roger Mortimer, who you'll remember was Pierce's charge. And uh, eventually Mortimer and Isabella invaded, uh, deposed the king, Edward, and put his son, uh, Edward III, on a throne. And when Dispenser was captured and executed, he was castrated, which was a punishment for sodomy. So the clear inference there was that he also had a relationship with Edward, a sexual relationship. And um, at the end of the Dispenser War, Edward, uh, who was forced to abdicate in tears, um, was imprisoned in Berkeley Castle, where he died conveniently quickly after being um, after being caught. 
and accounts of the time were that he was killed by having a red hot poker inserted into his rectum. Mm. Um, yeah, that's p- probably not true. Although that was the rumor that spread at the time, which suggests that um, he was associated very strongly with sodomy during his lifetime. I mean, it's prob- that's probably propaganda in order to discredit him, but that's the situation. Mm. <sighs> well. I don't know if we can go any further than that. Um, So, the question that we always get to at the end of the show. Here's Gaberston. Bad gay or not bad gay? Um, He seems like a very reckless character, but he's still operating in this environment of, you know, everyone being being awful and violent and um, conniving and plotting and murderous. And his main crime for me, would seem to be that he was just very bad at it. You know, like, try and make some allies if you're going to enter the world of the medieval court. I couldn't agree more. So, if people wanted to find out more about Pierce Gaverston, where could they look, and what are some of the sources that you use to research this episode? Well, there's a biography of him by, uh, sorry, of Edward II by Seymour Phillips, which features um, a lot of Gaveston, obviously, and which I um, consulted. And there is a biography specifically of Gaveston called Piers Gaveston, Earl of Cornwall by J.S. Hamilton. And there's also an interesting academic article about Edward II and the uh, relationship with plays about him, including Brecht and Marlowe, um, and that's called Edward II and Same-Sex Desire by Alan Stewart. Fantastic. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for listening to the show. You can follow me on Twitter at Hugh Lemmy, or you can subscribe to my newsletter, which is at hugh.substack.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at BenWritesThings. And you can follow the show at BadGazePod. If you liked what you heard, please visit patreon.com slash badgazepod to donate, and or you can leave us a review on iTunes or your podcast provider to help us grow our audience. Thanks so much. See you next week. Bad. 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 Bad, 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 b